Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. These six words are as instantly recognisable as the names of the six women that they refer to. Catherine of Aragon, the long-suffering Spanish queen who endured six recorded pregnancies, reproduced only one child, a daughter, Mary, which eventually ensured her separation from the king. Anne Boleyn, the most famous of the six and the first queen in English history to suffer execution. Jane Seymour, the original Plain Jane who succeeded where her predecessors failed, but in doing so paid the price with her own life. Anna of Cleves, the supposed ugly wife who actually had the last laugh. Catherine Howard, the teenager consigned to history as Nairhead Harlot. And lastly, Catherine Parr, the wife who survived and reunited the king with all of his children. I realise that this sounds somewhat trite, but it is easy to forget that these six queens were also Henry's wives. As wives, they should have represented more than being merely the consort to Henry VIII or the mother to his children. They should have been the people in his life whom he loved the most dearly and depended on most greatly. The king's chief supporter and counsellor, the person with whom he could always depend. And yet the notion of love as a concept with Henry VIII and his wives is seldom explored or even referenced. We judge the six queens on how their stories end, but why do we not ask ourselves who was the true love of King Henry VIII's life. Welcome back to the Tudor Chest Podcast, Episode 8, Who Was the Love of King Henry VIII's Life? It is natural and entirely expected for historians to divide the six wives of Henry VIII into their two natural halves. The stories of Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn and Jane Seymour are viewed with much greater significance than the three queens that came after. This is, in part, owing to the enormous interconnectivity of these three queens' lives with each other and the fact that they each gave birth to future monarchs of England. They are followed by the arguably more straightforward and less consequential marriages of Anna of Cleves, Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr. The concept of genuine love and affection, or even compatibility with these six women, isn't something often explored. If you ask the question, who was the love of Henry VIII's life, then more often than not, you will hear the following answer. Oh, he loved Jane Seymour the most. The justification for this rests on Jane Seymour giving Henry the all-important male heir, and the fact that he chose to be buried alongside her, which suggests the king felt most fondly of Jane when looking back on his chequered marital past. However, I do not believe his choice of burial should in any way influence how he considered the question, who did the king love most? Jane Seymour predeceased the king, therefore avoiding his later displeasure which could have resulted in divorce or execution. Crucially for Jane, she gave him a healthy son, and therefore her successes as a queen were judged solely on that one great triumph. Who or what she was, what she stood for, how she behaved, how she loved, these points are largely negligible, because in Henry's eyes, Jane achieved the one big thing that he asked of her as a wife. And it is for this reason that he will have looked back on Jane most fondly, 
and been the natural choice to be buried alongside. The king could hardly be buried alongside a woman he'd publicly separated from or had executed. As the wife of his heir, Jane was the only natural choice. The other wife whom many claim to be Henry's true love is Catherine of Aragon, his first wife. And the justification for this view is certainly evident. He was married to her for longer than any of the other five wives put together, 24 years in total, and it is highly probable that had she given him healthy sons that he would have never considered divorcing her. Henry and Catherine would have been together for the rest of their lives, and Anne Boleyn would have likely married her first choice of husband, Harry Percy. The evidence to support the assessment of Catherine of Aragon being Henry's true love is clear, for the king granted greater levels of respect and power than he was willing to share with his five subsequent wives. What we should never forget is that Henry appointed Catherine his regent in England when he went to war with France in 1513, naming her his Governor of the Realm and Captain General. This was a staggering display of not only loyalty, but confidence in his queen and her abilities. It would suggest that at this time, in their marriage at least, he viewed her as every bit his equal, and certainly in greater esteem than the many noblemen of his court who could have stepped forward into the role. Some could argue, quite fairly, that as the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, that Catherine had been taught from the cradle what ruling meant. But we are talking here about a time of staggering patriarchy. Women typically did not rule, although Catherine's mother was a rare example to that. And yet here we had Henry VIII, openly displaying confidence in his queen that she could steer the ship assiduously in his absence. When Catherine rode north to defend England from Scots raids, addressing the English troops in full armour despite being heavily pregnant at the time, it can have only increased Henry's respect for her. Thanks to both the queen's piety and the sadness that marked her final years, Catherine is often viewed as almost saintly. However, she displayed levels of ruthlessness and, when needed, aggression towards her enemies. This is evidenced by her sending Henry a piece of the bloodied coat of King James IV of Scotland, who had died in battle against English troops under Catherine's control. She had initially intended to send Henry King James's head before the Duke of Norfolk wisely <laughs> talked her down from such a brutal act. Catherine instructed Henry to use the piece of coat that she sent to him as a banner in his siege at Tournai. Whilst this was undoubtedly a badass moment for Catherine and ensured at the time respect from both the king and the people, the issue that Catherine faced was that ultimately Henry was not looking for glory in war from his queen. He was looking for healthy sons. And once Catherine lost her child, and it became clear that she would not provide Henry with the much-required and much-desired male heir, her victories on the battlefield melted to insignificance. The next phase in Henry VIII's reign is undoubtedly the most famous. Known as his great matter, this was the time when his most scandalous and enigmatic queen consorts entered the stage, Anne Boleyn. By 1526, Henry had become enamoured with Anne, who had been serving as a lady-in-waiting to Queen Catherine for some time. Catherine, by the standards of the day, was now middle-aged, and her childbearing years had sadly elapsed. 
driven by what Henry felt was an unquestioned need for a male heir, he began the process to separate from his queen for two decades and instead marry Anne Boleyn, with whom he believed male heirs would be born. The king's great matter would not be over in a matter of months and would in fact stretch across seven long years. The inability to secure the much-needed divorce was aided enormously by Catherine's own incredible connections, namely her nephew, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, who for a time had imprisoned Pope Clement VII, and thus the Pope was unable to sanction the divorce that Henry required. In the end, a true divorce from Catherine was never fully achieved. Instead, the marriage between Henry and Catherine was deemed null and void, as if it had never been. Perhaps under the influence of Anne Boleyn and her progressive religious leanings, Henry adopted a different mode of attack, leaning on scripture to suggest that his marriage to Catherine was lawfully invalid on the basis of her former marriage to his brother, Prince Arthur, and thus never truly recognised in the eyes of God. To make this absolute, Henry went a step further and broke with the church in Rome, naming himself supreme head of the church in England and had Thomas Cranmer name his marriage to Catherine invalid. Henry and Anne Boleyn secretly married in January 1533 and Catherine was formally stripped of her title as queen. Officially, she was to be known thereafter as the Dowager Princess of Wales, a title she inherited from her short-lived marriage to Prince Arthur a title that she refused to acknowledge, insisting that she was queen until the very day that she died. Anne Boleyn was crowned queen consort on the 1st of June, 1533. We tend to focus solely on the three years of marriage between Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn as being the official part of their relationship. But really, we should think of it more as a whole, taking in the seven years they fought to get the divorce. And so I would say that ultimately their, their relationship actually lasted for a decade, the seven-year legal battle can only have greatly intensified their passion for each other, especially as Anne Boleyn presented something new. Firstly, she withheld the king's sexual advances, not sleeping with him until her position was completely assured. But furthermore, Anna herself was such an alluring figure. In an age where fair skin and light hair were always in vogue, the olive-skinned and dark-haired Anne Boleyn certainly stood out in the English court, and often to her detractors for all of the wrong reasons. She was the opposite of what was considered ideal for a gentlewoman of the time. She was never meek or submissive, she was emotionally demonstrative, and she possessed what I think we would now call sex appeal. She wasn't the prettiest girl at court, but she was the sexiest, I think is, is how I certainly would see it. Anne spent a large amount of her youth at the French court, and this moulded her into a woman of considerable intellect, poise and glamour. She excelled at the game of courtly love, she was bold and fearless, and compared to the sort of more retiring woman of the English courts sort of flopping around, it isn't hard to recognise that Henry VIII would have been attracted to her. Despite the seven-year legal battle to win Anne Boleyn, once Henry married her, he did soon to begin tire. Beyond her inability to provide him with the much-desired male heir, it is my belief, and that of many others, that the very things about Anne Boleyn that Henry found so appealing in their courtship would grate in a wife. Ultimately, Anne continued to be Anne. She could not and would not restrain her character. 
who saw herself as both a queen consort and wife, but also a political advisor, someone with her own ideas, and didn't understand why she could not exercise those powers. Unfortunately, Henry did not want a political wife. He wanted one who knew her place, like Catherine of Aragon, but preferably younger and with the ability to produce healthy sons. When Anne Boleyn failed in that most important of duties, it made her position incredibly tenuous. She did not have the backing of an overseas royal dynasty, nor the love of the common people and the nobility, many of whom remained firmly loyal to Catherine and her daughter, Princess Mary. In the end, Henry and Anne's courtship lasted more than twice the amount of time that they were actually married. Famously, Anne fell from grace in May of 1536, and would become the very first queen in English history to be executed. She was beheaded at the Tower of London on the 19th of May, 1536. Just 11 days later, Henry moved on to wife number three, Jane Seymour. Something of Anne Boleyn's character can be gleaned from the fact that Jane Seymour appears to have been her polar opposite in basically every way possible. She was meek, mild, desperately plain, and religiously conservative. Henry, in effect, swung like a pendulum from one extreme to another. Although Anne Boleyn was not viewed as a staggering beauty, she undoubtedly exuded a dark sort of glamour that Jane clearly didn't possess. Her plain and dutiful manner is no doubt what attracted Henry to her in the first place. To quote the late, great Hilary Mantel, at least this one seems like she'd be no trouble. Despite her drawbacks, Jane Seymour did at least provide Henry with his heart's desire, a healthy male heir to Prince Edward. Tragedy would strike again for Henry VIII, however, when just two weeks later, Jane Seymour died, following complications from the birth of her son. As I referenced at the start of this episode, it is often said that Jane Seymour is the wife that Henry VIII loved the most. There are several pieces of evidence to corroborate this view, namely the king's decision to be buried alongside her and the fact and the fact that she ultimately provided Henry with that much-needed male heir. There is a very famous painting which is held in the, well, what is known as the Haunted Gallery at Hampton Court Palace. It's known as the family of Henry VIII and shows the king sat in the middle of a, a very large painting flanked by Jane on one side and Prince Edward on the other. His daughters, Princesses Mary and Elizabeth, are relegated to the sides, supporting acts in this outward display of how Henry perceived the future. One interesting thing about this painting is that if you look very closely, Princess Elizabeth, who is on the right-hand side, appears to be wearing a necklace with a pendant hanging from it, which is clearly a letter A, perhaps a sign of quiet loyalty to her mother, which she hoped the king wouldn't notice. The painting itself is of course a lie, given that by this point, Jane Seymour had been dead for nearly a decade, but is another piece of evidence that people use in the he loved Jane most argument. I would however point out that as the mother of his heir, then she would have been the obvious choice for inclusion in a painting which includes one of Henry's queens. Again, he was hardly likely to want to celebrate the two women who had preceded Jane's rule. After Jane Seymour's death, Henry did not remarry for three years, his longest gap as a bachelor. He was eventually talked into a marriage with Anna of Cleves, sister to the Duke Wilhelm of Cleves, in an attempt to strengthen ties with the important Germanic duchy. By now, the king's always volatile relationships with France and Spain had become dangerously close to war, 
And so he, and moreover his chief minister, Thomas Cromwell, needed the support of an overseas power. The marriage between Anne and Henry was famously a disaster, lasting just six months and was soon followed by the marriage to Catherine Howard. Anna of Cleves is consigned very unfairly to history as the ugly wife who smelt bad, with the nickname of a Flanders mayor, an enduring sobriquet that was actually not created by the king, but appeared over a hundred years after the end of the Tudor dynasty. As best we can tell, Anna was not ugly, nor did she smell. The only one who did smell by this point, and was grossly overweight, was the king himself. Anna is actually the queen who really did have the last laugh. By agreeing to a separation without fuss, she was richly rewarded, being granted several palaces and castles, including Richmond and Hever Castle, the former home of the Berlins, as well as a massive yearly income and legal status, a bit weirdly, as the king's sister, which ensured that she retained royal rank. She would live long enough to see Queen Mary I crowned, and was recognised as the third most senior woman at the coronation, behind the Queen herself and her younger sister, Elizabeth. The King's next wife was definitely his youngest, to Catherine Howard may have been just 17 at the time of their marriage. It is possible, in fact it's possible she was even younger, although more likely she was around the age of 19. As a Howard, she was part of one of the premier noble houses in England, but had the misfortune to be born to a second son rather than the first, and so despite her great name, Catherine's upbringing was not as grand as one would expect. She lodged with her step-grandmother, the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, alongside countless other young Howard girls. As best we can tell, Catherine acted as something of a tonic for the aged king, she was vivacious, she was certainly described as the most attractive of the six wives of Henry VIII, and she brought about a decided upswing in the king's sort of former irascible nature. He even referred to her as his rose without a thorn. Unfortunately, the marriage itself did not last. It became clear that Catherine had been committing adultery with Thomas Culpepper, a groom of the stool to the king, and soon she was convicted and would end her life on the scaffold like her cousin Anne Boleyn had done six years earlier. Catherine Parr would become Henry's sixth and final queen, the one who survived. Catherine was well liked by the English people and developed a particularly strong relationship with Princess Elizabeth. She acted as something of a nurse to the king in his final days, and reunited his family, bringing all of the king's children together, living harmoniously for perhaps the first time in their lives. Although known as the wife who survived, Catherine did not actually outlive her husband by more than 18 months. She died sadly following complications from childbirth, her first child, born to her fourth husband, Thomas Seymour, brother of the late Queen Jane Seymour. And so that's the wives and their stories very much condensed down, and so now I have to try and answer who was the true love of Henry VIII's life. Well, sadly, it's impossible to say with any certainty, for obvious reasons, but I believe that we can probably rule out the last three wives. I certainly don't believe it was Anna of Cleves, Catherine Howard, or Catherine Parr. The arguments for Catherine of Aragon certainly have their merits, and I do believe that there was probably genuine love there, certainly from Catherine throughout her life and from the king as well, particularly in their youth, in the way that a lot of teenagers, for that's what Henry definitely was, fall in love quite easily. 
For the reason I've previously covered, there is also the argument for suggesting that Henry's true love was Jane Seymour. As I hope I have conveyed, however, I do not prescribe to this, and I see major holes in that conclusion. And so for me, that leaves just one possible candidate. I am firmly of the belief that the love of Henry VIII's life was Anne Boleyn. And I'm not saying that because she is my heroine, my favourite figure from history. I firmly believe this to be true. In Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII met his match. And although I do not make a habit out of psychoanalyzing people from the 16th century, which I think can be very dangerous and misplaced, I think we can all agree that Anne was a woman centuries ahead of her time, and one who I believe Henry genuinely fell in love with. Their relationship was described as volatile, one of sunshine and showers, but in that passion I think there was, at its crux, a true love story. And without wanting to sound too dramatic, I think that with Henry and Anne, we had a couple who couldn't live with each other, couldn't live without each other kind of thing. They were a bit like Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor of their day. Such was their passion for each other that it could only ever end dramatically, as so many love stories where there is just almost too much love will soon burn out. Where Catherine of Aragon was Henry's childhood sweetheart, Anne Boleyn feels like she was the one, the true great love of his life. And I will continue to stand by that fact. Had Anne Boleyn given Henry VIII sons, I dare say they'd have been together until old age. Although, of course, the same could and would be said of Catherine of Aragon. Earlier this week, I put a poll up on Instagram stories asking followers of the Tudor chest to vote for who they believed to be the love of Henry VIII's life. I restricted it to the first three queens because, as I said, I don't believe it would have been any of the latter three. And I'm pleased, albeit slightly surprised, to report that the majority actually voted with me and selected Anne Boleyn, although it wasn't a landslide. And took 44% of the vote, Jane Seymour's 32%, and Catherine of Aragon in last place at 24%. I had expected Jane to be in first place, but I'm pleased to report that she wasn't, and that sense prevails. And so, that brings me to the end of this week's episode of the Tudor Chest podcast. Next week, I'm going to be exploring the life of one of the most fascinating figures from Tudor England, and, as it so happens, the subject of my first book, due for publication next summer. And I'm talking, of course, about Lady Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury. I also release a weekly subscriber-only episode, which can be accessed through my Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash the Tudor Chest, or via Apple Podcast subscriptions. A massive thank you to my patrons for your ongoing support. It really does mean the world to me. Thank you all for listening, and speak soon. Mm-hmm.